I have literally 34,000 windows open on my computer right now. There's no way that I'm going to be able to negotiate any of this. Okay. Whiskey, whiskey. Welcome to the Whiskey Topic. I'm Mark Bylock. And I'm Jamie Johnson. And this week's topic is... We're going to talk about some news, some whiskey news, and also uh, we're going to listen to an interview that Mark did with Han Sean, who's the uh, William Grant & Sons uh, Hudson Whiskey Brand Ambassador. Sounds pretty great. That's awesome. Yeah, I got to. We got to relive your uh, tales of the cocktail. I feel like you're gonna tease out some of this tales of the cocktail stuff for like a long time. I feel. Yeah, like. I mean, it's true because like there were a lot of you know short interviews of ten minutes, and there were longer interviews of half an hour. So we just gotta spread them out as as the love goes. I guess you just gotta like make us jealous. All, continuously <laughs> can't just let it go and be like okay no. I went to Tales of the Cocktail and I'll never speak about it again because it makes everyone jealous but no we gotta talk about it every week at Tales of the Cocktail I talked to this person and I drank all this good stuff and it was in the back of the car with McAllen <laughs> <laughs> so hey you summarize it so wonderfully <laughs> it's, it's, it's like you listen to the podcast occasionally Jamie <laughs> um, yeah no oh, so uh, but let's uh, let's first talk about some stuff that's in the news i guess um there yeah. has been some canadian whiskey controversy lately oh yeah so this is this is pretty big and this is what i'm drinking right now so um um actually i think this is kind of fun to explain too because it also talks about the differences between canadian whiskey and american whiskey right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so a canadian whiskey distillery called uh, toronto distillery co um they are located here in toronto they're the first distillery open in toronto since 1933 um so you know um located in the junction and uh, they started making whiskey i guess three years ago uh and they did a lot of they do gins as well and and a lot of um, white spirits. Right? They wouldn't mm-hmm. be technically called whiskey here in Canada. Right. And so they released a product called the First Barrels. Yeah. Uh, and this is kind of their first well-aged or slightly aged, I guess, whiskey. There's a problem, though. Mm-hmm. It can't be called whiskey. Yeah. Just like you just said, literally, um, they've been calling their their other stuff spirits. So wheat spirit, um, rye um beet spirit they cannot cannot legally call it whiskey yeah and it's going to be it's one of those things where in canada something uh for a spirit to be called a whiskey it needs to be aged for three years mm-hmm. in barrels um could be aged in used barrels could be aged in reused barrels but it needs to be aged for three years now that's different from the states in the states to be called a bourbon technically it needs to just like touch oak at some point right and so, you know, like, what was that? That's a great story of somebody that said, like, that you can technically pour whiskey into, a, or I guess a spirit into a bucket, walk it 10 steps, and there you go, you have whiskey. Um, and there's a lot of rules. So, like, uh, you know, straight bourbon needs to be aged at minimum two years. Straight rye has to be aged at minimum two years. Mm-hmm. Um, but bourbon itself uh, can't have additives, can only have, you can only add water, no coloring, and needs to be aged, and, and can just doesn't need to be of any significant age um and then of course you've got american whiskey as a Mm -hmm. broad category which kind of all those rules fall out like you can add flavoring coloring 
Uh, you know, we always I always use the example of like peach flavoring or like you know uh, like Templeton Rye. What they did is they they added like um, um, they added in like a rye flavoring or uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, chemically produced flavoring into the whiskey to give it some flavor. Um, so there's a lot of different rules. And so American whiskey, you have American whiskey. That's just a very broad category that pretty much anything goes. Then you've got bourbon where almost nothing goes. You can't add flavoring, can't add coloring. Right doesn't need to really be aged uh you know it could be aged for any just needs to touch oak um brand new oak but it only needs to touch oak um straight bourbon that now needs to be aged for at least two years uh there's also restrictions on proof levels so there's all these kind of rules Mm -hmm. to set a certain quality and standard you got it yeah canada what three years that's it three years that's that is literally that's it and then you can call it whiskey and you can call it whiskey Yes, and you uh, can add a certain amount. And if you've been listening to the podcast, we had Davin on um, sort of a while ago, sort of kind of at the beginning, and he sort of went over how much uh, room we have for additives because there is a, a, a cap on how much you're allowed to add of things that aren't whiskey to whiskey. Yes. <laughs> but but there are exactly but there are some misconceptions. Uh, people feel that you can add flavoring to whiskey, and that's that's not true. But you can add fermented products like wine or sherry that have uh, spent time in barrels, um, and you can add a, a spirit that's been aged at least for two years in barrels. So you know theoretically, a Canadian whiskey you could have a ten year old whiskey that's ninety point nine percent. 30 year old whiskey or whatever you know mm-hmm. using that as example but you can add that rest of that 90 the rest of that whiskey could be a two-year-old spirit um as it would be called in canada that still would be considered a 30 year old whiskey uh you know so there's all these kind of like different rules and they all and all stem from kind of historical context um you know in canada that's how whiskey was made in the early years they they the rule comes from you know every 10 barrels of whiskey um the whiskey makers would throw in one barrel of wine because they also made wine or sherry on premise and so they they wanted to you know flavor a very young whiskey because the whiskeys were very young um but the rule has changed to three years, and this is a problem for small distillers. You know, we've had young uh, young distilleries from the states uh, on the podcast before. Uh, you know, Harfield and Co. definitely comes to mind, and they, you know, they're selling three month old bourbon because they can, and they're making money on it. Mm-hmm. In Canada, yeah, that's not we do not have that luxury. That's right. So if we want to, so if you want to call it whiskey, you got to sit on those barrels for three years. And you know, what do you do in the meantime? What are a lot of people doing in the meantime? Or small distilleries here are making gin um, or unaged spirits. Um, and it's it's not easy to to start a distillery here in Canada if you don't already have something going on. So a lot of distilleries are coming out of uh, wineries because um, there's already sort of profits being made. There's already uh, you know licenses uh, being fulfilled and and things like that. So basically. Um, yeah, it's really hard to say I'm going to start a distillery and make whiskey unless you have a huge amount of money, like a pile, like Scrooge McDuck, just sitting there on a pile <laughs> of coins. It's really, really hard to start a distillery here. Yeah. So Toronto Stilico, um, uh founded by two lawyers, they um, decided that um, th- their their point of view is very simple. They they don't like additives in whiskey. They don't think uh, additives are important, and they also feel that. Um, that reused oak doesn't. They're, they're, you know, if I paraphrase their feelings, as they say, well, if you take a barrel that's been aged for three years and many times reused oak, it's not going to impart that much flavor. Uh, whereas if you age 
a whiskey for one year or two year in newly charred oak, you're going to get a lot more flavor from that. And we use that that old adage, the tea bag, right? The first time you use a tea bag, you get a lot of color and flavor. The second time you use it, you get less. And that's the whole idea with barrels. The first time you use it, you get a lot of flavor. The second time, less and less. So uh, their point of view is why do, you know, unless you're mandating new oak or certain char, what does it matter whether it's been aged for three years or one year? And so they released a product that's been aged from anywhere between two months to 24 months, or 26 months rather, um, in, as they say, new char, which doesn't mean new oak. Uh, Jamie, you pointed this yeah. out to me. You're like, well, new char doesn't mean new oak. That's but. right. There is a, there is a, you know, it, they do it in Scotland too. They, you know, sort of um, scrape down the inside of the barrel and they'll rechar it. And, and so, yeah, it uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's brand new oak. So, um, and so they're selling and they're calling it whiskey. Um, they're selling it out of their distillery and um, they're only going to be like 1,500 um, bottles available in their, um, I mean, I guess this weekend coming up, they're going to have their, um, they're going to be selling them at right. the distillery. And um, and so the question is, uh, is this whiskey, is this not? Um, and it's been a controversy because in, by Canadian terms, you can't call it whiskey. Uh, by American terms, if they were made in America, it would, still wouldn't be bourbon because it's like 40% corn. It's right. under, this is the wrong mash bill. Um, but it would be considered an American whiskey, certainly. For sure. And uh, and they call it a straight, I don't actually have my bottle right in front of me, but correct me if I'm wrong, they call it a straight whiskey? They do. And they're using... Is- yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. They're borrowing. Sorry. They're, yeah, they're borrowing the the U.S. Right. The the yes. U.S. term. Right. So unadulterated. Not nothing has been added. Um, nothing. Uh, no additives. No coloring. No flavoring. Um, but straight is not a category that exists in the Canadian whiskey vernacular. We do not use that word. So, uh, again, on a couple different fronts, this has caused a bit of an uproar in the whiskey community here. Yeah, because people were thinking, well, if we have, um, if we have, uh, well, first of all, from one standpoint is, you know, if you use the term straight in the U.S., then it means at least it's been at least aged two years, two years. and this hasn't been. So um, even using the U.S. vernacular, it doesn't work. Um, but but the other problem is they're, they're you know, f- as far as the PR around this is they're going after the industry that does include additives and they're saying, hey, you know, we're not adding additives. This is how we're using the word straight. In this regard. Yeah, and it's worth noting that this is not the first time Toronto Distillery Company has come up against controversy. Um, And hey, perhaps that's part of, you know, what their PR. Um, But they also were the ones that launched the lawsuit against the LCBO um, not that long ago, I guess. We talked about it maybe within the last six months. Um, mm-hmm. uh, around basically the ability, the, the taxation of selling your uh, spirits directly out of your own bottle shop versus through um, the store uh, and how uh, it should be, it, it is unfair to spirits distributors to charge them the same amount on selling their own um spirit through their own bottle shop that they maintain that they um, staff um, as uh, charging them the same amount that that you would charge in in the LCBO or taxing them the same amount on it. So basically, uh, there's a couple things that Toronto Distillery Company um, has found, uh, you know, stonewalled against uh, when trying to open a distillery in Toronto. And uh, instead of just sort of, you know... 
not like instead of just complaining about it, I guess they're kind of going ahead and doing something about it, given their legal background. They're just sort of, you know, saying this is not fair. We don't think it's fair and we're going to fix it. Um, And it doesn't always fall into favorable um, hands, I guess. So, you know, there's a lot of different um, working components. You have, you know, people from uh, big distilleries that have um, vested interest in, you know, keeping things the way that they are. You have a lot of small distilleries that are popping up that um, maybe are on side with some things, but not on with others. You have people like Mark and I who are aficionados who, um, you know, sometimes just grab the popcorn and like watch the whole thing go down (laughs) on Twitter. (laughs) That is true. Um, true. You know, and who, you know, me and Mark could have a debate or, you know, all night about basically like what happened here? Is this the right thing to do? Is this the wrong thing to do? And change our mind 64,000 times. At the end of the day, we're like, you know, we're not financially invested necessarily in any of this or whatever. Um, But we sort of do have opinions that kind of go all over the place. So I guess we're kind of lucky in that we can kind of step back and watch right now. We're in a good place. I think this is the beauty of having a podcast and being able to share opinions without actually having to uh, invest, uh, be invested or financially uh, t- tied to these issues. Yeah. And do, we can change our minds, too. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. Um, you know, and I, and I think this comes down to, because, uh, you know, we, we've, we've, we're, we're having conversations about this over drinks. And I think it really does come down to um, where you stand on, if I could use, I don't know, Jamie, uh, D&D terms, like where you are. Are you lawful good? Are you chaotic good? Right. Um, you know, if you're lawful good this is wrong and that and you know right toronto silico should just shut down shop and that's it uh because right. the rules are the rules this is not called whiskey and you right. can't say oh but i think it's unfair i should drive 100 miles over the speed limit because my car can go faster and mm-hmm. i should think it's right. unfair i'm getting pulled over um then there's the other side of the story where you may be you know um i don't know i guess chaotic good where you're more like well the whole idea here is you want to set You know, change rarely happens in society without people pushing boundaries and, you know, doing something that society might view as as illegal or or bad and and trying to make that something possible. So when you look at whiskey, you know, a lot of these rules were made from a historical context. Um, So moving forward and saying, look, the industry should have different standards for different types of Canadian whiskey um, and challenging that by releasing a product and pushing that product in the market. Um, You know, it's kind of like the Uber example. Uber Mm. was illegal everywhere around the world with the exception maybe San Francisco um, and yet they found loopholes in the law that just didn't account for the fact that Uber might exist and they took advantage of these loopholes in some cities like in Toronto Uber eventually gained acceptance uh, where it lived kind of an enigma of uncertainty and other places like in uh, you know Houston other places the city said no this is not allowed you can't do this right Um, and so the idea is like with some innovations you you take risks and you break the law but I mean you also need to be willing to you know, take the consequences of that. And I guess for me, it's, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not here, you know, I can't decide what the law is and I'm not in a position to decide what the law is. I think it's an interesting study as to how the law will favor one side or the other. And will this even be challenged? Because if this isn't challenged by... Right. by uh, people here in, in Canada, Ontario, the people that are monitoring these things, then, then it won't even matter because it won't get challenged. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No. It's really, it's really, really fascinating. Like I haven't really made up my mind. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of not going to choose sides on this. I'm really curious to see how this all plays out. Um, 
you know, I I have worked with Toronto Distillery before. Um, they used to let me come in and watch them sort of make some whiskey and and basically like sort of learn uh, the process. So I I know uh, Toronto Distillery Company, um, and I've always been curious about how you know they sort of they look at their operation in a very different way than maybe other places do. They they're sort of always looking outside the box to see where things can be uh, changed and uh, always sort of um, questioning uh, why. Why is this like this? Does it have to still be like this? And things like that. So I'm not surprised that they're the ones to uh, get this new thing sort of, you know, out there uh, and this new sort of um, controversy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, well, uh, yeah. it's gonna be interesting because I think it, it's it's uh, we should have Davin on the oh, we're planning to have Davin on a podcast soon, yeah. so we'll, we'll ask him his, his opinions on this as well. Yeah, and um, I think they they release uh they released the whiskey on the fifteenth, and I believe that same day they're doing a Reddit AMA um, as well. And so, if this is something that you're interested in, um sort of learning a little bit more about or if you're kind of fascinated uh that might be a spot to keep an eye out yeah there you go uh we'll we'll post some links in the show notes and everything else uh, there's there uh you know and i think you know we do have a lot of listeners that are e- either in the micro distillery w- making yep. whiskey or selling whiskey and also for uh, uh a lot of brand ambassadors listen to the show as well so i thought you guys might find this interesting um but the one thing we we, we need to have I, I think we have to have an opinion because i agree with you jamie i'm not here to I, i'm not ready to kind of have an opinion on this beyond i think it depends where you fit in that kind of moral scale as to how much you agree with or disagree with uh with what they're doing i'm kind of wanting to see where the law or what you know i mean for me ultimately like what does the law say um but uh knob creek let's talk about knob creek for a little while yeah another another big kerfuffle we heard on the internet a little while ago knob creek uh dropping their uh age statement from their small batch mm-hmm. yeah uh the nine-year age statement is about to disappear into the abyss yet another one um, Yet but one. they're keeping the age statement from what I've heard on the single barrel offering and they're going to keep it that way. So I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that what you I, heard too? Or did you hear uh, that they were dropping all of them? You know, I, those two always get, uh, I haven't heard any, you know what? I got to okay. double check that. I'm okay. not sure about that part, but they are, um, they are t- dropping the age statement and the, um, and I think the biggest part of the controversy here is what, this has happened now, you know, with Elijah Craig, with Knob Creek, with others. The problem is, you know, six months ago, somebody says, no, 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 everything's fine. It's going to be for nine years. <laughs> right. And, it will always and, say nine years on it. always say nine years. Yeah. Da, da, da. That's the, you know. And then, you know, six months later, they're like, eh, you know, when we said that, sorry, not happening. Uh, Fred Minnick broke the story and the internet got outraged for, I think, a week maybe. But, I, but you know, I think Pretty people much, are getting used to this now. Yeah, I think people now. are, are kind of over it. And, and yeah, I mean, it's always been, you know what, Knob Creek is one of those ones that I I, um, I don't, I think maybe I'm over age statements in bourbon anyways. Like, I don't think I, I put that much stock in them a- anymore because we've lost so many of the age statements. And 
I've sort of gotten used to it. And I mean, Basil Hayden's had a, an age statement for a while, for a long time. Uh, it dropped it many, many years ago. And then now I, I was always kind of surprised that Knob Creek still had an age statement um, for as long as it did. But yeah, I think the only thing that got really people got really persnickety about was that they literally came out and said, no, we won't be we won't be dropping that age statement. And then it was like, oh, wait, <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> and and I mean the thing that annoys me is they knew like they knew like they knew a they year knew. ago they, they they have forecasts yeah. they have computers they have yes. people on spreadsheets they yes. they know yes um so I don't I don't know why I I think you know I don't think I think this is getting more more the negative PR is coming more from the fact that there the insistence that the age statement is not dropping right. Um, Interestingly enough, Buffalo Trace Eagle Rare still has an H statement on it. Now we're watching that one because yes. it was a very similar story where there's like, no, 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 A statement's not going to get dropped. Even though they uh, moved it to the back of the bottle. They moved it to the back, they're hiding it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> for design reasons. Oh, oh my gosh. Uh, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Uh, oh, do we? did you mention that you were drinking the uh, first barrels? No, no, I didn't. But yeah, I'm having okay. a sip of that. Yeah, I still have a cold, so I, I can't. You know what? It's funny with me with a cold. I, I just don't. I can't get the same notes as I, I do without a cold. However, I will say it's 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 pretty good. So it's a young whiskey, right? And for me, it's, I don't. It is a young whiskey. Yeah. I don't generally prefer. I don't generally like young whiskeys. I, right. Um, it's a, that the nail polish kind of notes really get to me a bit. Uh, but Acetone, I think it's yeah for sure. Yeah, but I, I think the. Um, but I think there's a lot to it here. I think the the different barrels and grain usage gives you like a nice nice balance of flavors. Um, you know, I, I think you know I, I'm interested to see what they do with the product as it gets older. For sure. Um, yeah. And I am drinking the Hudson Baby Bourbon. Um, oh, yes, which is sort of a really good sort of. Uh, you know, bridge into the conversation that we're going to play um, next, which is with the U.S. brand ambassador. So I thought this was a really interesting. Well, actually, I think this works really well in what we were talking about today with Toronto Distillery Company. So Hudson uh, Baby Bourbon uh, came out of. Uh, I can, now I, I forget how to say it. Tulatown, Tulatown. Oh. Yeah, their I'm distillery. Gonna... It's yes. be- yeah. I'm not asking Mark how to pronounce anything. <laughs> no, never. <laughs> <laughs> um, so again, so small distillery. Um, everything is locally sort of sourced. That's something that is important. Also, I know to the Toronto Distillery Company is they're actually uh, organic, um, and they've got the organic stamp. Not Hudson Baby Bourbon, but Toronto Distillery does. So you can trace. Um, the, the whole thing is traceability, so you can trace back to the farm that the grains were grown on. And it sounds to me like uh, when you were talking to Han that his uh, the whole idea also of Hudson Baby Bourbon is keeping uh, keeping everything sort of local, locally sourced, locally made. Um, and, uh, you know, the... the he mentioned sort of pre-prohibition there there were distilleries everywhere all over Mm -hmm. the place they were making um you know whiskey out of um you know any sort of if there was a glut of you know any kind of grain that you'd be able to just take your grain to the distiller or you know the distiller would bring a small still to you so um the idea of having uh, and that's something that we don't have anymore and just doesn't exist um that that sort of got lost during prohibition was um you know the idea of small locally sort of made spirits um and how important they were to the community and how um much work they did um and i thought that was a really really interesting um 
uh, point. And yeah, so I'm drinking Hudson Baby Bourbon made in baby barrels, um, aged under four years, no age statement, which actually is also not exactly legal um, because you're supposed to, if it's less than four years, you have to put an age statement on it. The TTB hasn't nailed them on it yet, so there you go. Yeah, they, they, uh, right, because they call it a young whiskey or yeah, well, it, baby bourbon. They're, yeah, it says implication. Aged, yeah, it says aged under four years in American oak. Um, but I do not believe they put, yeah, it doesn't say exactly how old. So under four years, it could be six months, it could be two years, it could be. Well, but you know these ones are so confu- so confusing. But it does, it's not it's not a straight bourbon, so technically it doesn't need to. Only a straight bourbon True. needs to have an age statement. Hey, right? that's a really good idea. That's really oh, good point. These rules are so confusing. Uh, but yeah, I think I think I do think they had a straight bourbon originally, and that was aged under four years. Got it. Say. But I think this one, the one that says baby bourbon on it, uh, doesn't need to say. It the doesn't age. need to say it because it doesn't say straight, straight. bourbon. You're right. You're yeah. absolutely right. Hundred percent. Which still guarantees you no additives, um, and uh, except for water and no coloring and that kind of thing, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee the age. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, aged in small barrels, so the color is pretty uh, pretty intense on this one, actually, for something that's under four years. But there you go. Um, so yeah, in- I really enjoyed this uh, this interview. So I hope you guys do too. Oh, oh, but before the interview, um, let's talk forget? about Whiskey Live, October oh, yeah, 22nd. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, if you guys are in Toronto, uh, you're going to be in Toronto October 22nd, uh, please join us at Whiskey Live. Uh, Jamie will be pouring whiskey for Jim Beam, and I Yay. will be uh, at the author's row, as they say, along with Davin and Adam McDowell. Uh, Adam is a Toronto-based author that wrote a book about cocktails. Fred Minnick, as we know from uh, multiple bourbon books, and also uh, Women of Whiskey, uh, he wrote a book on, on the history of women in whiskey, and then uh, Chris Sismondo. I'm totally pronounced that incorrectly. I as think always. you pronounced it right. Really? That's amazing. Um, so yeah, that's going to be uh, Whiskey Row on Whiskey Live October 22nd. You can go to WhiskeyLiveCanada.com and see all the information there. Also, if you guys, um, you know, we're, we do whiskey tastings. We do a lot of whiskey tastings, especially this time of year. Uh, yes. But if you have corporate events and you want myself or Jamie or both of us, we, we do, um, normally Jamie and I do whiskey tastings together for fun. We do it for, yeah. you know, bourbon thing for Jamie's Whiskey Club um, or, or for friends. We do, we do for fun, but we are doing couple of tastings where it's uh uh for for corporate events where it's jamie and i uh we do that get in yeah. get in contact we'll uh, send you price sheets um you can also fly us out we accept any sort of flights south we, of the border yeah we will hop on a plane sure um, somewhere <laughs> warm preferably um but uh we do uh, of course we do travel for whiskey tastings as well so if uh, if you're interested in that and you want to reach out to us just go to whiskey.buzz w-h-s-k-y.buzz no vowels except for Y, and um and you could uh, just go to contacts there and reach out to us and we'll uh, we'll set you up there all, all right. right yeah and do it soon <laughs> yeah, really do it soon because we, we we're booked yeah like crazy. yeah we know it's uh, exciting which is great it's great it's you know we we're super lucky that we uh we get to have such a fun time 
when we do this part of the show, I always feel like we're kind of like, you know, like you listen to some comedian podcast, they talk about all their dates. I feel like right? we do the same thing. We don't do public events. So a lot of our events are privately done by That's corporations, right. yeah. uh, but it's very similar. Like, and we will be in this city at That's this right. time. That's right. That's right. Um, but yeah, a lot of times it's just private events, but uh, there you go. Um, so yeah, up next, uh, Han Shan, Han Shan, uh, and this was recorded at Tales of the Cocktail where I drove in, her, uh, in the oh, car. And yeah. I drank whiskey and I partied. Okay. (laughs) Woohoo for you. Yay. (laughs) Thanks, Jamie. I'll talk to you guys next week. Oh, that was funny. Um, So I'm here with Han Shan at uh, Tales of the Cocktail. We are uh, on day three now of Tales. Feels like day seven, but uh, we've got a few more days to go, eh? Has uh, the amount of hours of sleep, has that equaled 10 hours yet yeah. <laughs> in the I whole time? It, no, you know, so far, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I've been here a few years, so, uh, you know, you, you have to pace yourself. Now, Han, you um, you introduced me, you introduced yourself to me as a whiskey geek first. Um, you are now the brand ambassador for Hudson Baby Bourbon and Rye. Um, the whole Hudson whiskey. The line. whole Hudson whiskey yeah. line. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Uh, that's right, because you also have other grains as well. A four grain bourbon, a single malt, a handful of other fun little things that we'll see soon. Excellent, excellent. Absolutely. But you started off as a whiskey geek first, living in New York City. Indeed. Yeah, I was telling you, basically, you know, living in New York City, being a whiskey nerd, being a whiskey enthusiast, uh, Hudson whiskey was on my radar quick mm-hmm. uh, when they uh, started making whiskey back in, in, I guess it was probably 2004, um, and, uh, you know, didn't, didn't hit the shelf anywhere until 2006. Um, I think it probably hit my radar 2007, so not quite 10 years ago, but, but very, very near the, the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I've, a lot of people already know, but Tuttletown Distillery, which makes Hudson whiskey, of course, in the Hudson Valley was the very first distillery to start up making whiskey again in New York after Prohibition. So mm-hmm. 70 years after the end of Prohibition in 1933, 2003, those 70 years, there was no one making whiskey, at least legally, in New York State until Tuttletown Distillery, until Ralph Arenzo, uh, his uh, partner Brian Lee started making whiskey again, and uh, the baby bourbon was the, was the first product that kind of frankly took New York by storm and and so on my radar very early and so I just followed Tuttletown Distillery and followed Hudson Whiskey with a tremendous amount of interest and enthusiasm and I love the liquid so uh, basically I became the the Hudson Whiskey ambassador when Ralph the founders son Gable uh, my predecessor decided he wanted to spend a little more time with his wife and (laughs) get off the road uh, being a being a Hudson Whiskey ambassador for the US um, you know, we, we stay busy and we're out there a lot, obviously. We're here in New Orleans, but next week, you know, I'm, uh, well, we get around. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the point is, uh, Gable did his time, and, and when it was uh, time for him to come home, I put up my hand and said, I'll, I'll, I'll go proselytize the good word of Hudson Whiskey, and I got lucky, so I'm in the role now. Nice, nice. Um, the, you mentioned the early years of uh, Hudson and the brand. Uh, the baby bourbon was originally, I believe, a two-year-old uh no, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where I, you know, I, I think our marketing paints us into a corner to a certain degree. We called it the baby bourbon because originally, in the very early days, it was exclusively barreled, it was aged in little baby barrels, okay, hence right. the name, literally. And, and uh, we're talking, you know, three gallon, 
barrels where that increased surface area contact between the wood and the spirit and that smaller volume barrel means well, some people say age faster. You'll never hear me say that, and, and that's not what you know. Ralph and Brian and Gable, any of the distillers at Tuttletown will say, but it does impart certain flavors much more quickly, mm -hmm. right? That that caramel, that vanilla, those tannins that come from the, the new charred oak. Um, but really, that's where the name baby bourbon comes from. Nowadays, we age all of our whiskeys in small barrels, 10-gallon barrels. Mm -hmm. Half casks, 26 to 30 gallon barrels, depending on the cooper we're getting them from. And traditional 53 gallon American whiskey, sort of standard size barrels. And we vat those together. Right. So we've got some younger whiskey, year and a half old from a 10 gallon barrel. Mm -hmm. And then we've got 53 gallon barrel whiskey that ages four and four years and up in our rick houses. Uh, we're vatting that together. So there's no age statement. Well, there is an age statement that says aged under four years because you can't obviously uh, you know, use an average. It's the youngest drop in the, uh, of, of whiskey in the bottle that makes it uh, the age it is. Um, so we just say aged under four years, and so far the TTB says that's all right. <laughs> so far? Yeah, so far. Um, Hudson uh, took on a big, a big uh, the bartending scene in New York City really took on Absolutely. the bottles, the, the brand, what it represents, the For whiskey sure. inside. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think, you know, for one thing, just being the first, people were very, very excited to be able to play with something that was made right up the road in the Hudson Valley. So being 75 miles north of, of New York City as the crow flies, uh, Manhattan being, you know, the center of, of the bar scene uh, in, in the, the U.S., I, I think folks were just excited to play with something that was uh, made by, you know, it was, it was a hometown whiskey. And... Um, Obviously, the, the marketplace has gotten a lot more crowded. The shelf has, has gotten a lot more crowded, but that's also exciting to us because Ralph um, Arenzo, who I, uh, you're going to hear me mention often because, frankly, he's a hero and a friend, uh, but uh, he's a hero because when he wasn't in the stillhouse, he was stalking the halls of Albany, helping change the laws and making it possible for other craft distillers to start making whiskey. Again, not just in New York State, but in other places. And so people by supporting Hudson Whiskey, they were also sort of supporting the, the rise of craft distilling and this, this movement, if you will. So I think that there, there was a lot of goodwill towards Hudson uh, from, from that aspect, but at the end of the day, it's good liquid. It's, it's, it's nice whiskey. Uh, so people were excited to see the Manhattan rye and, and be able to make classic cocktails. And it hit at the right time. So people were making, uh, you know, old fashions and Manhattans. Uh, again, with uh, with rye whiskey and uh, uh, the Hudson Manhattan rye makes a hell of a Manhattan. <laughs> Excellent. Um, we're going to talk about that a little bit later with the kind of the, the brands that you have. Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, you made a great, excellent point, and it's it's worth restating the um, when you want to make whiskey in a state that hasn't had whiskey in eighty years. There's no laws there. I mean, I know yeah. where I'm from in Ontario, there's a, we're dealing with a lot of that pressure as well because sure. there were the big guys that make whiskey, but for, <laughs> for the smaller, uh, the, the micro or the craft distillers, depending on the t term you want to use, um, it's a challenge. And to have Absolutely, to yeah. go to somebody in the government and say, hey, so I'm going to do this now. How do we make this happen? That, and that's what it was like. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ralph basically saw... Well, I'll go back just a little bit and tell you that, that he purchased this land, this old fallow farmland with this water-powered grist mill uh, mm. at the, that, that anchors the property. This beautiful old water-powered grist mill. He bought this land uh, to set up a, a, 
a climber's camp. He was a whole rock climber. And it's, and it's the gateway to the gunks, the Shawang Gunk Ridge, the world-class climbing destination. And you can see it from the distillery. From, from the back of the distillery, you look up and you see that ridge. And if you have high-powered binoculars, you can see climbers up on that uh, stone face climbing. And basically, the neighbors didn't like the idea of sharing their swimming hole with a bunch of dope-smoking hippies or whatever they thought. Right. Uh, and they fought him. And ultimately, he realized that he was going to have to get variances to do that. And he needed to find an agricultural use for the land. And an agricultural use, he didn't want to farm. He didn't want to uh, you know, grow apples, although there's a great tradition of that there in the Hudson Valley. Um, there's rye growing all over the place and corn, but people were, you know, farmers were growing rye as a cover crop off season, right? But he started looking at it more and more and he saw that uh, you know, setting up a distillery is actually an agricultural use. It's a, a farm distillery. And that was what, what you know, began this, this whole journey. He really bootstrapped it. He decided, hey, what the hell, I'm gonna make whiskey. And uh, so really, H Hudson Whiskey is an elegant plan B. Tuttletown Distillery was the fallback plan. It's, uh, you know, we- Inspired by the environment. It is inspired though, right? Both government regulation and the land. Yeah, indeed, indeed. By the regulatory environment and, uh, and, and by that beautiful little valley and, uh, and the farm that he found himself, well, in possession of after spending his life savings and needing to do something with it. Um, but <clears throat> what, you know, what, what he found, uh, besides the fact that he could do that, was that there was still a ton of red tape that made it very, very hard. You know, it, you, could, you could distill, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the same old thing. You have to find a distributor and get distribution, and you got these big distributors. Who are, why should we take on your little product that nobody knows when we've got this stuff that's proven and been, we've been selling for decades? Well, so the next thing that he did is, is he started uh, advocating for the passage of something called the Farm Distillery Act. And in 2007, that's what really opened the floodgates because what the Farm Distillery Act says is that you can sell direct to consumer from your tasting room. You can use a distillery like, like a winery as a tourist destination and you can do tastings. Um, and ultimately, it makes, it bridges that gap, it, it, it makes it, a lot easier for folks just starting up to make a name for themselves, to attract consumers straight to the tasting room who can take bottles home rather than trying to go through the distributor, sell it to the liquor store, then have somebody go you know, to the retailer. So that, that was really what, uh, well, made him a hero to a lot of other distillers, frankly, and, um, and, and really puts Hudson Whiskey and, and Tuttletown Distillery at the, at the forefront of this kind of craft distilling revolution that we're seeing still rippling across this country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, before we get to that, tell me a little bit about the grains used. It's all look like locally sourced. Absolutely. So that's, that's part of the, uh, what is actually uh, circumscribed in the Farm Distillery Act. Mm -hmm. um, and now that, that template uh, from New York has been used in, in other places to create, you know, legislation in Colorado and, and Washington State and a uh, bunch of other places. But basically what it says is that you have to use at least 75% local grain mm -hmm. uh, or local agricultural product if you're making a, uh, you know, a, a, an eau de vie, if you're making a, a, a apple brandy, same thing. But it has to be made uh, from New York product. And if you 
make it from at least 75% local New York product in New York, then you can do that. You can sell direct to consumer. You can get a farm distillery permit. Um, so for us, that was, that was what he wanted to do anyway. So we work with local farmers. For instance, our corn uh, in our baby bourbon is made, uh, or it's <laughs> grown right around a corner at Tantillo's farm, Lenny Tantillo, literally fourth gen, third generation, fourth generation, I always forget, but um, <laughs> I mean, you know, been around for a long time in, in the Hudson Valley, and they, you know, they have beautiful orchards, but they also have cornfields, and they grow nice heirloom Wapsie Valley corn and, and some field dent corn, and so our, our rye, our corn, our wheat is all grown locally, literally within 100 miles. That is a big part of the micro distillery, craft distillery movement, is the use of local uh, grains. Yeah. Because uh, the big guys basically just source from big farms and it all kind of blend, all the grains kind of sure. blend together sure. and they get they, a consistent flavor. Absolutely. Uh, and they're going to work with a broker, Yeah. you know, that tanker trucks come in from Iowa and it's yeah. uh, I'm, the grain is, is, is often perfect, perfectly yeah. good. I think for us, it is partly about the heritage. It is partly, you know, we, we actually believe that there is terroir in, in, mm -hmm. in our whiskeys that come from using the local grains, from aging it there, um, from the, the water that we're, that we're using that comes from deep water wells right there on the farm. Um, but, you know, it's, it's also about those relationships. It's about supporting local farmers. Uh, last year we celebrated our 10th anniversary and, and we celebrated the 10th anniversary of the first Hudson Whiskey, uh, you know, coming off the still that, that, that went into a bottle called Hudson Whiskey. Obviously there's always starts and stops and people mm -hmm. try different things and, and it was no different at Tuttletown. So it's always hard to say, all right, when, when did we start? When, yeah. when did we, when, when, when was it founded? Tuttletown has its own anniversary, but for us, it was it was last year we celebrated a decade of making Hudson whiskey and the uh, governor Cuomo sent an aide and there was a proclamation uh, in you know basically congratulating Tuttletown congratulating Hudson whiskey on 10 years now that's not because governor Cuomo is a big whiskey geek himself or uh, you know because he thinks um, Tuttletown is going to be celebrated in, in a hundred years as something uh, hugely important to the whiskey industry. He was congratulating us on helping kind of create this, this economy and, and mm -hmm. it, it's plowing money into the tax base and it's supporting local farmers who are no longer growing rye as cover crop, but growing rye to make rye whiskey again, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's exciting. So Can you just uh, briefly define cover crop? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, basically, you know, you uh, grow something and, and you harvest it, and if you don't sow anything, and you're going to have all that nice topsoil erode, right? So rye has always been used as a, just, it's a, it's a grass, it's a pulse, and it basically anchors the soil and keeps the field healthy for the next crop next season. But in other words, they would just then plow under that, that rye, and they wouldn't do anything with it. Now they're actually harvesting that and selling it and we're grinding it up and mashing it and milling, you know, milling it right into the mash tun and, and making whiskey. So that's exciting. It is. Uh, yeah, and we, we talked on that podcast before uh, in Canada and in northern parts of the U.S. as well. You had the rye. It was kind of the original grain to Absolutely, get so prepared. Right? Uh, just keep that so healthy. Um, tell us about, uh, we've touched about this a little bit, but the craft distilling industry, how has it changed in the last 10 years? Well, I, I mean, really, it's, it's, it's so exciting. There's a uh, 
just here at Tales of the Cocktail, for instance, there have been a handful of different craft distilling panels and seminars and tasting rooms where you can go and see all these folks. Uh, and, you know, I'm pretty sure at this point there's been uh, a distillery, you know, a new craft distillery set up in, in every state across the US. You're seeing it in Canada, you're seeing it even in the UK, places that have obviously this venerable old distilling tradition in, in uh, you know, in Scotland. Also in Ireland, you're seeing new little craft distilleries starting up. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's exciting because for me, particularly here in the US, that tradition existed pre-prohibition. There were lots of distilleries littered across uh, the U.S., but certainly in the Northeast where we are in, in, in New York, uh, there there were hundreds. Yeah. And I mean little tiny distilleries, like not even really in, in some cases uh, permanent operations, but rather, you know, every farmer at the end of a season, if they had some apples that were rotting, that you know, or, or about to, right? They'd call up their friend who'd bring us a little still over on a on a wagon, and they'd make some brandy. That was a way of capturing the economic uh, just worth of of that crop, and it was a way of well keeping keeping oneself a little bit more comfortable through the cold winter to come, right? Uh, and and obviously that just that went away after after prohibition. That gutted all these these uh, little distillers, these family farm distillers. Um, and now I, I just think it's it's cool to see it coming back, where uh, people appreciate it as you know as as a culinary pursuit, um, and people appreciate the the fact that they can drink local beer and uh, and then also go have some local spirits, literally made you know in their hometown or right up the river or whatever it is. Nice. Um, You've mentioned the Manhattan Rye Bourbon. Uh, can you give us uh, listeners a preview kind of what products are yeah, yeah. there and what products are in the future? And we'll wrap it up there. Sure. Well, so we were tasting just a little of our Hudson Baby Bourbon. That's our best known, best seller for sure. Uh, our, our Baby Bourbon is uh, an all corn bourbon. It's got a nice sweetness, 92 proof though, so it's non-chill filtered. Um, and uh, again, made grain to glass. We work with you know, Lenny Tantill brings the grain over in his pickup truck. We mill it right in the mash tun, mash, ferment, distill, barrel, age, bottle every drop there at Tuttletown. And uh, again, it's an all corn bourbon, so it's nice and round. You get lots and lots of smoky vanilla and caramel. Our Manhattan rye whiskey is is probably our next best known, and that is got a little bit more of that spice, of course, that makes rye rye. You that little cracked pepper, a uh, little baking spice, and nice minty uh, on on the. Uh, on the finish, but it's great in a Manhattan. It's great in those classic cocktails, but it's a sip and worthy rye. We also do a four grain bourbon, which uh, obviously foundation of corn, that's what makes bourbon bourbon, but then we add rye and wheat and malted barley. Very unusual to see both rye and wheat. We like the best of both worlds. You get that spice, but then you get that nice smooth finish that a, that a weeded bourbon often has. And then finally, we do a single malt. We do a, you know, malted barley, uh, yeast and water and that's it. That's them's the rules of, of uh, a single malt. Um, and uh, our single malt though is aged in a new charred oak barrel, like our bourbon, like our rye. So it's got a little bit more of that American whiskey, that vanilla and that, that tannin that comes from the, uh, the new charred oak barrels. Um, we do a maple cask rye as well. We take our Manhattan rye and we finish it. After it's fully aged, 
we, uh, we finish it, we put it back into barrels that were used to age maple syrup. Not a traditional maple flavored liqueur like mm -hmm. sweet whiskey. Uh, it's just got a little hint of that maple roundness, little hint of sweetness from, uh, from going back into those barrels that were used, to, our barrels that were used to age some local maple syrup. And, uh, and then when I say innovations, things coming down the line, I, I'm not allowed to talk about them, but right. I, can, I can hint. I mean, the truth of the matter is we're in a great place. Uh, we've, since William Grant and Sons came along and invested in the distillery back in 2010, uh, you know, put in a, the biggest still, the 850-gallon still, which of course is still a tiny little pot still, but you know, in the scheme of things. Um, but we've been laying down a lot of whiskey over the last six years. And so we've got stocks and, you know, we, we always are looking at what we might be able to do, whether that's something that's a, a cask strength special bottling or some single barrel releases or a bottled in bond. We're, we're looking at those things. And, and, you know, for us, it was about getting our baby bourbon, our Manhattan rye into 750 mil bottles. A lot of people know we only uh, were bottled in a little 375 mil bottles. Uh, until very recently and now we wanted it to be more accessible for our fans and for, and for folks who, who enjoyed it for the last 10 years it's uh it's at a more accessible price point it's in a bigger bottle so a bartender doesn't need to crack a new bottle every six pours that was the more important thing now that we've got that done and we're on some more back bars and we're a little bit more accessible we're looking at all those other fun things that we can do keep things fun keep things playful uh, after all, you know, why, why do it if, if you're not having fun, right? Nice. Thank you so much, Hunter. Hey, um, my pleasure. Very good to have you on the podcast. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks.